Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. It is a priority for us to like, you know, have that work-life balance and like maintain it in terms of like not grinding till like a 10 p.m. So that's that's not something that any of us are looking for. We do want to have a proper balance because I think all of us at this point, even though we're driven, we're passionate about the things that we do and we want to hustle during the time that is given to us. But beyond that, I think a lot of us have other hobbies and other things that we would love to do. Iris Shah, a student in Singapore, sounds like a classic Gen Z. But she's also working three jobs during term time and spent her summer interning at a consultancy. The eldest Gen Z is just 26 this year in 2023. But unlike the kids these days in Europe or the US, Ira's cohort in Asia are likely to be the ones to change the face of global fintech. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and in this episode, we dissect what Gen Zs in the Asia-Pacific think about life, the universe, and money. Gen Zs in Asia are important because fintech ideas born in Asia, be it the Southeast, India, Korea, or China, are beginning to influence the new tech trends in the global North. Asia's Gen Zs have grown up in an environment where a mobile is the tool to get everything done, be it social events, shopping, or banking. But what will possibly be the most influential factor for fintech will be their numbers. Africa is Asia's closest rival for demographics. It has the youngest population in the world, with 840 million people younger than 27. But in Asia, almost a billion people are under 25, and they live in the area spanning Japan and China in the north, Pakistan in the west, the Philippines in the east, and Indonesia at the southern tip. Laos is the youngest nation by median age, closely followed by the Philippines, then India, and then Indonesia. Population, combined with the region's innovative fintech ideas, is likely to drive global fintech trends in the coming decades. Who are these bringers of change in Asia? They are as determined to set boundaries with their bosses as their peers in the West. They grew up in countries where state-based social safety nets are uncommon, They are seekers of financial stability. But with wages stagnating, stability means learning investing early and often from finance influences online. What they are not are many millennials. And why would they be? Some of the oldest millennials will have Gen Z children. As a millennial myself, I'm pretty used to having older people put random labels on me and my peers. So in this episode, instead of just talking about Gen Z, which I will do at the end with regular Breaking Banks Asia guest, Dr. Usman Chohan, for some analysis, 
I handed over the mic to three twenty-somethings to find out what they had to say. I asked an Australian student and TikToker, an Indian student in Singapore, that's Ira, and a Pakistani graduate taking her first steps in the workforce about their attitudes to work, how much money they earn and how they spend it, and their hopes and dreams for the future. I'm, I'm from Calcutta in India. I'm here in uh, Singapore uh, for my undergraduate studies. I'm pursuing a major in politics, law and economics in Singapore Management University. I'm actually busy with like a lot of work. Uh, I have an internship which is going on. It's a communications consultancy firm. And I'm also in a research assistant position with my college professor from the Department of Law. That's 20-year-old Ira Shah. University in Singapore has been her first taste of managing her own finances, and it's been liberating, but also challenging. I'm studying a Bachelor of Psychology. I'm in my second year. I've just finished my first semester of that, hoping to one day be a clinical psychologist, but that's a long way down the road. And then spend a bit of time researching, thinking, and blaring my opinions about the world to other people. This is 20-year-old Australian National University student and mental health TikToker, Nick Mayer. He makes the most of Canberra's student lifestyle, but cost of living pressures are biting, to the point where Nick and many of his friends are only studying part-time in order to work more hours to make ends meet. I am a 24-year-old Gen Z from Pakistan in South Asia, and I'm currently working here as a researcher in subjects related to sustainable development and development economics. And this is Zahra Niazi, a master's graduate who is 18 months into her working life, but who is already very aware of the need to forge her own financial security in a country where safety nets do not exist outside the family. I find the cultural reporting around this next generation fascinating. From the fashion choices, which I'll admit I don't understand, to the ways they're driving change in the workplace. But what I wanted to find out was whether the once cross-generational aspirations of travel, weddings, home ownership, families, the really big financial goals in life, are things that these Gen Zs also want, or even feel they are able to aspire to. Here's what Ira, Nick and Zahra had to say. So one of the top dreams I've had is uh, possibly going to the United States of America and studying, uh, like pursuing either undergrad or postgrad in a university, like some of the top tier universities. That's a dream that every student has. I love to travel. I want to eventually uh, probably work in international organizations, you know, either like multilateral or bilateral. And... um, I want to pursue international relations or international law, one of those two. Having my own house that I own would be a major goal. I think that's a pretty basic thing that humans have wanted for all of history, their own place. I'd love to live sort of somewhere close enough to like more urban populations, but also sort of close enough to the bush that I can just go for walks and camping whenever I want. I've thought about like considered moving to Greenland when I'm much older and living real far away. Yeah, I want to be a clinical psychologist. That's sort of my career goal, I guess. But I don't want to view it as much of a career as more a vocation that provides me 
with the money I need to live life. I'd love to keep studying throughout my life and take on a variety of different jobs within that field. I have a family as well. In general, I would say that my hopes and dreams, they revolve around this desire to bring a positive impact on the lives around me, to become a source of happiness and you can say a source of well-being for all those around me to whatever means possible. In terms of the question that how do I see myself living, I would say that I just see myself living as an individual who does that nine to five job and then is supportive and caring a responsible part of her family and a supportive, responsible and caring part of her society in general. I think I would want to travel. This is something that I would, who doesn't actually love to travel? I think everybody does. A bit of travel, a decent job, a happy life. It's not the fiery change the world stuff the likes of Greta Thunberg have taught us to expect of Gen Z. And neither is the way Ira, Nick and Zahra think about money. The word stability came up over and over again in our conversations, and they are not alone. Young people around the world are really worried about money. In 2022, UK-based Relationship Support Network Relate found four-fifths of Gen Zs are feeling milestone anxiety, or the pressure to hit key life milestones, but without the ability to do so. Student loans are now astronomical. Wages, despite well-publicised shortages of talent, for many young people are not great, as casualisation makes more and more jobs less secure. That means longer as a poor student, longer to pay off loans and save for a house, a financial goal more expensive than any time in recent history. And we're likely looking at 10 years, maybe more, of high interest rates for the first time in decades these things mean Gen Z will have to work longer to reach the same financial milestones that previous generations did. This is already a factor for 20-year-old Nick, who is studying to become a clinical psychologist in Australia. I only take three courses each semester at uni because it's just, it's too much to sort of do the full four-course load and be working and still have time to just be friends with people and do things. And that seems to be a really, really common thing among a lot of my friends. It's definitely a lot more common than my parents have made it out to be when they talk about their university experience to be doing three or even some people do just two courses. I think definitely like the demands of having to work in order to be able to afford rent and food and be able to do stuff is definitely having a notable impact, at least from my point of view, on a lot of people's studies and getting through their degree in a reasonable amount of time. Sure, some 20-year-olds choose to do part-time uni to save for a house or other major life goals. But Nick's friends are delaying finishing uni so they can work just to make ends meet today. It's daunting stuff. I asked Ira, Nick and Zahra in Pakistan what worried them about money. Here's what they said. I think money is always at the back of my head. It is one of the things I've always been worried about, per se, because there were a lot of instances in my life in general where it was because of money and not because of merit, where uh, 
certain opportunities were taken away from me. So I was one of the top scorers in my school for my uh, examinations. And during that time, because there was COVID and because, you know, I had like issues with funds, I wasn't able to go to like the universities that I would have, like, I would say were on my top uh, five, 10, whatever. I'm, I'm, nonetheless, I'm like really happy to be in SMU. But yeah, those at that time, it was a lot of disappointment. Inflation definitely really worries me already. Uh, the cost of all the halls, colleges at uni all rose last year and they'd risen the years before as well. Inflation for just basic things like food, even like I think I'd count like a healthy amount of social spending as basic needs. Obviously not, you know, absolute basic, but I think it's not just about living, it's about thriving going into a world where at some point, you know, maybe even next year I'll be living off campus in a share house with mates and the influence of inflation on just rent is something that is a little worrying to me. And then that's the stuff that I have to worry about, like right now, sort of day to day in the future, you know, I hope that houses become less expensive. It's not, it's not looking great so far. It's just kept going up. Saving has become such a big, big privilege for a lot of people around me. I also see a lot of people worrying about, you know, not having enough money to even cover their unexpected expenses and their basic needs, the unforeseen events and medical emergencies. Apart from that, I also see some people worrying about being able to afford their, their future education, they're also concerned about providing enough financial support to their families, including their parents, their spouses, and some of them, even their children. I would say my, my biggest concern is I would want to have, I would say, enough savings or enough investments on any source of passive income that even at time, during times when I'm, I'm not actively earning or even during the times when I don't have a source of regular income, I should at least be able to fulfill my own wants and needs. I would just want to have financial stability. But as a young person, often studying or in low-paid work, how do you get financial stability? I asked Daniel Silva, the COO and co-founder of share trading platform Stake, what the data is saying about Gen Z investors. This data is from Australia. But interviews with people throughout Asia suggest the themes are relevant across the region. They're having it tough. It's a turbulent economic time, high level of inflation, um, and people are looking at their salaries and that ultimately they're not rising at the rate that they need and they expect. And they're taking somewhat of a pragmatic approach to being like, well, I know that the textbooks tell me that I need to go and build my wealth over the long term, but they're actually seeing it firsthand early in their on their journey into adulthood that actually that this is something that they really need to be doing. That they are more engaged from a budgeting perspective um, to actually researching and learning about financial literacy and using different resources around to be able to support that. Daniel says some young people are learning about investing at school or through higher education, but most of it comes from online sources. That's why Stake is keen to build out its first-time investor support resources. But online also means Finfluencers on the likes of StockTok. 
I'm in. I just I just sent her to play. Alright, I'm just in. I'm in. I'm in now. Mon. Move. Mon baby. Okay. Alright. A little 10%er right now. Wait, wait. If it breaks above this line, we're fing we're, we're banking. We are making so much money if it breaks above that line. Fuck. Go up! Up to the sky! Come on, baby. Come on. Fuck it, I'm going. Hey. hey holy shit! We're up like two thousand dollars. Okay. This could be any day trader on the internet ever. But this guy's a Gen Z who says he's on Finfluencer social investing platform Parrot Finance. That's one extreme of what you can get on TikTok's FinTok world. At the other extreme would be Ira. I asked her about her relationship with money and what she and her friends know about making it. I'm not an expert in finance and I honestly rely on my father to help me out with all this but a lot of people our age who are sort of like pursuing finance or something they've started investing and they've started realizing the importance of like you know creating money for the future like that's that's what most of my friends say like keeping it investing so that there is money tomorrow there is money that is growing tomorrow Ira you told me that before you left home your father did all of your banking for you What's it been like for you and for your friends living out of home for the first time as an international student and figuring out your own financial life? It's made us more and more aware and conscious of how we're like spending money every single day. And like, you know, when you're in a home country with your parents, you're just like, you know, you don't think twice. But when you come out, you're out on your own alone. You have a budget to follow. You know, every single day, every single activity, you note down how much you're spending, how much your expenses are. At the end of the month, you're seeing whether you're saving, whether you're not saving. So all the more, you know, there are small, small things that, you know, you try to do to save money or earn money. So saving money would be like trying to eat more at home, trying to cook at home and saving money there. And um in terms of like earning money, it's always trying to grab as much as you can, teaching assistant positions, research assistant positions, part-time positions. I think more and more people are, especially our age. So there's always like this growth mindset that's there. Then, and there's always this um, saving mindset that's there. Like you're enjoying and you're doing the things you like and you're not compromising, but you're also uh, sort of saving up, trying to find new ways to earn more and more. And yeah, that that competition is always uh, going to be there. What do you think is driving it for you and your friends? Is it financial instability? Is it a sense of not sure what your future is going to look like? You know, what what's driving that? There are two things. I would say, firstly, it definitely is financial stability because everybody wants a job which which pays you well. And it's it's not, sometimes people think it's about the competition. I want to earn more. But I don't think nowadays it's uh, that. It's more about your personal needs and um, being stable in future. Uh, currently, I would say in Singapore, because the job market is very uncertain, it's also like a way of grappling with the uncertainties. You know, like if tomorrow I don't get a job. So um, I would at this point, I would rather take up a job which gives me $1,500 a month over a job which I like, but gives me $800 a month. I know you use a spreadsheet to track your spending rather than apps, but has moving to Singapore matured or changed any other ways in which you think about money and banking? In Singapore, everything is on. So we're just using digital banks and 
we're just tapping it from our Apple Pay, which is like our e-wallet. And uh, yeah, I, I honestly do not have any cash. I, I, I do not own like a single dollar of cash. How does that go when you go home for the holidays? So every time like, you know, you go back to India, you're just like, you're switching on your Apple Pay and you're trying to tap and he's just like, okay, no, we're back in India and, um, you know, you have to have cash at all times. So it, sometimes I keep forgetting that I need to ask for cash from my father in the morning so that, you know, for the week, if I need something, it is a culture shock. And I'm genuinely hoping that uh, India in that case transitions faster because everywhere, everyone is just looking for that ease of getting done with uh, having cash and coins all the time and just like wanting to tap it in. One area that fintech is only just beginning to explore is around environmental products. Nick, my generation, millennials, had the science isn't settled. But yours has grown up with the knowledge that climate change is a real and cataclysmic burden that we have to deal with now and forever. It's reached the point where young people in Japan will trade in a well-paid job for one with a company perceived to take sustainability seriously, according to one study in 2021 from Hiroshima University. And even banks like DBS in Singapore and Westpac and Combank in Australia are beginning to respond to consumer discomfort by creating in-app carbon trackers for spending. But for you, Nick, this understanding of climate change is really changing what you buy and, and how you live. Can you tell us why and how? I, I don't drive, and part of that is because I sort of am a little bit apprehensive towards the whole everyone needs a car for everything they need to do. Um, I think that that is something that society broadly is going to need to reckon with, how much we rely on individual motor vehicles to do basic tasks. Things like travel, definitely sort of, I haven't been overseas or on a plane in quite a while. And then sustainability, like broadly, I mean, well, it's, it's sort of everything, right? Like the earth has finite resources. It can replenish a lot of those resources, but that takes time. And so it's the basic hard limit to anything that humans want to do. Like there, there's an upper limit to how much we can consume and there's a lower limit to how much humans need to exist happily. But then there's also like a sort of a large part of me that feels a little nihilistic almost about the more individual actions that we do in our day-to-day lives because, you know, I'll make the effort to recycle, I'll make the effort to buy less stuff, use less cars, more public transport, but then there'll be an oil spill and the ocean's on fire and there's nothing I can do about that. It doesn't matter what I do. So it's sort of, it's a tension between those two things. Like sustainability for individuals is something great to practice, especially because it will directly impact the environment around where you live, right? If you're littering less, the animals and the nature around you is going to have a better life and is going to flourish. But you can't control what's happening on the global scale. We'll be back after this short break. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Asia? Reach out to learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows with an audience across Asia of CEOs, CTOs, founders and opinion leaders. Breaking Banks Asia is where the forward-thinking conversations are happening about fintech and banking in Asia. Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Breaking Banks Asia 
or go to www.provoke.fm. And we're back. Gen Z is famous already for setting boundaries with employers and causing major headaches when they do. University of Queensland Business School Management Lecturer Dr Adam Kay told the Australian Financial Review newspaper this year that the social contract of work hard, get a well-paying job and buy a home has broken. Now Gen Z is fighting for better conditions to make up for getting the bad end of the bargain. But Ira, Nick and Zahra are also ready to work hard to achieve what they want. And they're ambitious. They just don't see that working their contracted hours and no overtime should equate to making less money or missing out on job opportunities. Here's Ira again, who is spending her summer in an internship and during the school year studies and holds down three jobs now as a teaching assistant and research assistant. I think in today's day and age, uh, what's become more and more important is this work-life balance that you're talking about. And I think um, not only me, but everybody around me is talking about it and is, uh, again, prioritizing it. So 100%, like, we do want to have a proper balance because I think all of us at this point, even though we're driven, we're passionate about the things that we do, and we want to hustle during the time that is given to us. But are you concerned that by not doing overtime, which has historically been the measure of commitment and therefore advancement in the workplace, you're going to damage your earning prospects? So I think the attitude is changing more and more from a work hard perspective to a work smart perspective. In that, I think like as more and more Uh, young people get involved and as more and more young people are now honestly voicing their opinions and like being more assertive about the fact that okay I do need a work from home today I do need to stop working at six or I do need to go home I think uh, in future it's not going to harm how much uh people earn because this transition is going to be more about the way we're approaching work but not like the way we're cutting down on the amount of work we're doing. I don't think the money moving forward is going to be an issue and people are going to think that if they work less, they're going to earn less. Um, I mean, like, I think that if there's eventually going to be an attitude shift, especially driven by us, driven by the Gen Z and what the Gen Z demands, it's going to be more for, it's going to be more positive. It's going to be more towards having a work-life balance, earning the same amount. You straddle Two very different geographies. You work and study in Singapore, but you come from Calcutta in India. What are your friends saying? Are you seeing divergences in how your friends in Singapore and how your friends in India are approaching work? I think there are uh, very visible divergences. I think in India, there is still not... uh, that high level of adaptability for work from home because a lot of people I think traditionally have been used to going to office every single day and like that's what the grind is in India and uh, even uh, a few of my friends who had done internships during summers in India they had to go to office like from Monday to Friday they were also working in a startup so if I compare a startup versus startup so they they had to like work stay extra hours, work extra hours. Sometimes, you know, you're not uh, paid for the extra hours also. So um, I think the transition, like Singapore and India do present like 
a big gap in terms of uh, moving forward but i wouldn't say that in india the the culture has not set in it started a lot of um, companies are uh, trying to have those uh, strict boundaries where you don't uh, you know you ensure that people leave home early and they did not expect it to stay there is still a lot of time that is you know that they're going to take to finally transition into like the what we call it the post covid era zahra with the start of a career under her belt has firming ideas about the role work should play in a person's life it can't be the be all and end all but with good time management and self discipline it is important to treat with dedication i asked her to describe how her views on work and life have changed as she's entered the workforce So basically I believe that whenever you make this conscious decision to work you basically agree to work with dedication with responsibility with commitment and with diligence but I believe that my attitude towards work life balance has also drastically changed in in the past one year or so I believe I had associated a lot of my happiness and satisfaction and self worth with how much I was achieving academically and professionally which also meant that my work life balance was compromised to an extent but honestly with time i started realizing that those achievements they don't have to be rapid those could be gradual as well and now i believe that my life itself reflects a very good work life balance and i have also become one of the biggest advocates of maintaining a work life balance and at the same time i also believe that work life balance doesn't imply that you have to compromise on your responsibilities as a responsible employee of an organization because when you're signing a contract basically you're agreeing to fulfilling certain responsibilities and those responsibilities i would again say they have to be fulfilled with diligence and with hard work and dedication zahra you have a very sympathetic boss now but how do you think you will go negotiating those boundaries with a more demanding employer Well I always try communicating with my boss as much as possible I try to create a comfortable environment and let him know about how much tasks I'm, I'm able to manage and he's also he also understands this he's also able to understand me Let's talk about social media Who hasn't heard about Gen Z's social media use Social media is where people are now and this is where fintechs and companies have to meet them. While older generations may still have some ability to ignore social media or turn it off, for young people it's an integral tool for life. It's like knowing how to drive. And particularly in Asia, where slightly more than half of the world's social media users of all ages live. TikTok, after all, was born in China. Gen Zs in Asia spend 5 to 6 hours a day more in the case of Indonesians online but they do worry about what that's doing to their offline relationships and their privacy it's the new search it's where shopping starts and where you meet your friends it's where gen z gets financial advice if you're 18 or about to turn 18 then these are the five things you need to know if you want to be the first millionaire in your friend group Ira says influencers play a big role in the decisions she and her friends make around social spending. Nick uses TikTok to actively broadcast about mental health 
and spreads his online life over four platforms. Yeah, so I'm on TikTok. I use Facebook mainly because everything at university uses Facebook. Instagram, because that's just what my sort of friend groups have always used. And then Snapchat as well, but that's seen a large decline in use. Yeah, so my TikTok started off mainly focused on mental health, my own experience and like my own opinions on broad approaches to mental health and that sort of stuff, which was like, I guess, almost a little cathartic for me and that I got to speak about what I experienced. But then I started getting a lot of comments and messages from people saying that it had made them feel like a lot less alone. And that really, really motivated me to keep going with it. I'm just letting them know that other people experience this as well. And I think that was something that was really meaningful to me to see all that sort of stuff. Um, I have at times sort of considered monetizing it, but I've always felt that um, monetizing an account that is primarily based around people who follow for my mental health content, that would lead to a little bit of an ethical dilemma in my eyes, at least. Yeah. Okay. Right up. It's time to get inside Ira's and Nick's budgets. What do two 20-year-old university students make in a month? And what do they spend it on? Ira makes about 1900 Singapore dollars a month right now from two jobs. 1000 comes from her internship and 900 from her research assistant job. She saves a little, but rent, school fees and utilities eat up about $1,000 a month. And she does need to have a social life. She's also convinced her professor to let her take on two more teaching positions once her summer internship finishes to replace that income. In Canberra, Nick makes around 2,000 Australian dollars a month, but that depends on whether he can work his maximum three to four days a week. Nick has a mental illness and sometimes it flares up and prevents him from working. When that happens, his parents step in and fill in the difference. This year, he lives in a hall of residence at the university. That rent, which does include food and utilities, as well as extra groceries to top up lean hostel meals, takes up about three quarters of his monthly budget. The remainder, about $500 to $600 a month, covers all other spending, including social. Ira and Nick are vehement that debt is not on their radar. But their friends dabble using microloans like buy now, pay later. Debt is definitely something that worries me because already I'm you know, struggling to finish the months with savings. Hopefully I never end up in the situation, but it's very possible that it ends up that you kind of have to go into debt in order to get through the month. And so that, you know, at that point, a credit card or even a buy now, pay later is practical for getting through the month, the day, but... It's not practical for long-term financial stability. And so there's a real conflict there between how I see myself financially now, how I might see myself financially five, 10 years from now, and the realities of debt and the realities of the cost of living. In the context of Gen Z's and debt, the most scary data is actually out of the US, from Credit Score's Vantage Score and Credit Karma, 
which show young Americans are racking up credit card debt up to three times faster than previous generations did. But in Asia, there's not much good data out there yet about how, or even whether, Gen Zs are handling much debt. What there is, is a lot of hand-wringing across the region about payment methods like Buy Now, Pay Later, encouraging young people into debt. Here is the data that we do have. Singapore data from 2021 suggests that as many as half of the oldest cohort of Gen Z might be in debt, but those statistics also include millennials. Also in 2021, the Time Media Group in Guangzhou reported that only 13% of Chinese adults born in the 90s, again, that includes millennials, were not in debt, meaning that 87% are. Hand-wringing in India in 2019, again mentioning Gen Z but actually talking about millennials, and again in 2021, suggested that young people are being entrapped by loan shark-like microloans from apps. The kids in South Korea, however, might genuinely be in trouble. Debt taken on partly to fund crypto purchases shot up by five to six times between 2020 and 2021. But again, that makes data covering Gen Z and millennials. Conversely, a monthly bank survey in the Philippines in 2022 found a third of Gen Z Filipinos say they don't have enough access to credit to achieve their financial goals. And in Vietnam, credit isn't nearly as frightening for Gen Z as it was for previous generations. So what does all of this mean? Does it really matter if Gen Zs are bossing around their employers and delaying life goals? To bring it all home, I asked economist and author Dr. Usman Chohan to join me to analyse what these trends might mean for banking. But first, we'll take a short break. At Breaking Banks Asia, we cover the inside stories, the emerging themes, and the exciting people participating in Asia's banking and fintech sectors. If you want to reach our dedicated audience, including listeners from government regulators to the top levels of Asia's fintech and banking companies, reach out to Breaking Banks Asia on LinkedIn or go to www.provoke.fm. Welcome back. I am your host, Rachel Williamson, and with me is Dr. Usman Chohan, author of numerous books, including A History of Bitcoin, and co-editor of a new edition called Retail Investors and the Future of Finance, which looked hard at younger investors. Welcome back to Breaking Banks Asia. It's a pleasure, Rachel. Thank you. I'd like to get your take on this assumption that millennials are the same as Gen Z and the impact that is having on where companies think fintech in this region is going to go. Strictly speaking, right now, as of 2023, millennials are anyone aged between 27 and 40. Gen Z is aged between 9 and 26, and that's according to the Pew Research Center. But there's a large amount of informal research out there, mainly by companies with an interest in the outcome. And I say informal because it's not peer-reviewed, it's not done through formal channels, it's companies doing polls, surveys, market research. And they are suggesting that millennials and Gen Z are into 
super apps that incorporate everything, single touch, fast, effortless payments, such as embedded buy now, pay later, QR codes, even crypto. They like to be rewarded for loyalty, which I found strange given that millennials were apparently the flighty, disloyal customer. And they love microloans. What do you think about that conflation of two generations, both at very different life stages, as companies try to read the room on where fintech's going to go in the future? Yeah, you know, Rachel, you've brought up some excellent observations that seem to be uh, true. Now, fintech is very much geared towards the millennials for now. And that's something you've said, and I agree with it. It seems to be the case that since they do have disposable income and because there is greater visibility on their consumption patterns as well as saving behavior, it seems that fintech is already very uh, well geared to it. There are special elements related to microloan tendencies. They are into this stuff. They are into finding get-rich-quick schemes. And there's also a deeper psychological malaise, which is the get-rich-quick. It is essentially the gap between the lifestyles they have come to see now for more than a decade on Instagram versus the mundane lives they lead. The and drudgery we're talking of about millennials lives. specifically. Yes, precisely. We should be a little careful to conflate millennials and Gen Z simply because the age gap is not yet determined. But I will bring in one important thing here. Uh, there's a professor, Nizan Geslevich Pakin, who contributed a chapter to ours and subsequently published a paper in Nature on the same thing, which was about the gamification of finance. So fintech and even the traditional banking system, at least in North America, and possibly increasingly in Asia and Europe, is very much of an appetite to lure in the kids with gamification mindset. And kids... Well, not even if I would say even adults don't have a good grasp on money, but kids certainly don't. And so the fact that kids uh, are being put into a World of Warcraft sort of state of mind is very, very dangerous. And there's very serious ethical implications of this. And so that's one thing I'd point out with the young Gen Z, which is to say, let's say, born, let's say, after 2008, that they are particularly vulnerable to this sort of thing. So these behaviors are being distorted. And, and this gamification does not apply necessarily to millennials. Not that we didn't play video games. We're quite good at them. But the fact is, we don't think of money in that sense. So the generation gaps uh, necessitate a distinct disaggregation of millennials on one hand and, and Gen Z on the other. What I found really interesting from the interviews that we did, and I am going to say up front that we did speak to just three, but there was a strong sense of needing to be financially sa stable and of sa saving and investing in simple products to grow their savings. Do you think there is a lower risk appetite in Gen Z? Or do you think they're more educated about things like stocks and crypto because of that need to be financially stable? And therefore, what is conservative to them might look quite risky to me. It's a nuanced question, you know, because there's three countervailing forces, so in three directions. The first is that financial education is more robust for them. For example, there's a lot of influencers that make their repute on TikTok through financial education. It's done in a sarcastic and appealing manner. So this financial savviness for a 20-something today is much higher than it was in the 90s, or certainly more than the 70s. So it is true. At, at the same time, one reason why young people in just about everywhere, and it already is true in Asia, but it's coming increasingly true in Europe as well, is that they cannot 
expect the pension system to be there by the time they retire around 24 or 50 2060 they yeah, just can't already because... already my partner and i are thinking that we're never going to retire and i share this with you uh rachel because i plan to work till at least 80 just because i enjoy what i do but it's because i also cannot count on the system now there were much stronger social safety nets in in europe previously but gen z in Europe, does not expect it. In Asia, it's more of a mixed bag because we never got around to having robust safety nets in many of the countries. Not It's not true for all, but many of them haven't had it to begin with, so they don't even believe in the promise of a social contract in that sense. That ex- helps to explain their conservatism and their lower risk appetite. I know that one of the Gen Zs you interviewed is from a country that simply has no such thing to begin with. Uh, and so the typical for that person, the typical safety net would have been a large uh, joint family system. But the joint family system is also eroding. And I'm talking about more traditional Asian societies. So the, the nuclear family is coming in, but the, the state is not there to provide that. In fact, the state extracts a lot from the people and doesn't give much in return. So finally, the third countervailing force, aside from greater financial education, as well as the lack of belief in a social safety net or a social contract, is that YOLO capitalism is a big deal. So there is, especially among young men, this desire to just go big or go home. And go home means go to the grave kind of thing. Just go all in. And so they are leveraging up as much as they can, whether with existing recognized assets or the sort of crypto decentralized things and to go in as in, hard. And Gen Z in that sort of 20 to 26 age group as well? I do. I do. I do. Certainly. It's quite strong among them. So th- th- these, th- this is one category within Gen Z, uh, which is going big or going home. And unfortunately, many of them may go home um, and they won't have much to back it up. So there are nuances among this category. I, I think you will agree with me at some point that generational lenses tend to blur what are different social classes, different countries, different you know, temperaments. But as far as we can see, we should at least disaggregate among these three factors. Now, no one I spoke to used debt. Millennials killed credit cards in a way because they embraced buy now, pay later. So do you think Gen Z is going to kill debt as we know it today? You know, I think that's it. I think that they will have to readjust their notions of debt to address the desires of Gen Z. Because Gen Z has grown up in the shadow of 2008. So their entire lived experience has been the shadow of some disaster that happened once upon a time when I was a kid. And for some reason, the world is awful because of it. So that sort of uh, aversion to debt is very different from even Gen X, late Gen X. And and th- that's because late Gen X did not really experience the inflation of the 70s. So that's a unique window where they don't have the historicity. They were already quite strong by 2008 to withstand it. So the fact that the real question will be the future path of interest rates. Now, we grew up in what's called the great moderation, us millennials. So the 80s, 90s, interest rates have been generally lower, certainly lower than they were in the 70s. But now we might be in a new phase that might stick around for a while. It certainly may not be zero bound interest rates. And that means that the next decade will shape very much how Gen Z feels about if this is even worth it. Buy now, pay later is a much better way to deal with the interest in addition to the principal, right? So I feel that the next, the, the future path of interest rates will be a very significant determinant in addition to having grown up in the shadow of 2008. Yeah, and, you know, the sort of microloans that you can get through those Chinese giants where you can get 40 days credit interest-free and then pay it off or interest-free buy now, pay later, these are unaffected for at least the consumer 
by interest rates, but the, the companies that offer them are certainly not unaffected by that. This is a very good point. Very good point. I'm just worried about, about the reputational issues that these big loan companies may confront. I mean, we, they haven't gone through so many crises thus far, but it may there may come a time where they in succession start to default or they really go too hard on these sensitive young Gen Zs, which is to say that in some countries, loan sharking behavior has increased a lot over the last decade. And, and as Gen Z comes of age to deal with loan sharks, they may not have the same stomach as Gen X did, for example. So if there's a reputational change in this micro-lending sector, perhaps they may seek other alternatives. It's one thing that we cannot predict right now, but it may happen. And how about personalization as a trend? I've been hearing for years about personalization being the next big thing. Is it the case that Gen Z is finally the personification of personalization? If you ask me in what I've gleaned from it, from interviews like you've done and so on, as well as book five, my understanding is that this is the last stage of individualism uh, as an ideological framework. And, and you saw the death of it, the initial death pangs of it with the millennials. Look at the hipster culture, for example. So this is popular culture as opposed to banking, but it gives you a good analogy. Because hipsters were supposed to be totally, totally personalized people dressing ironically. But the truth is that all hipsters end up looking exactly the same. They do, yes. They're indistinguishable from one another. Conformity is still a very strong thing. And in fact, with vehicles like TikTok, the grasp, you can really have millions of apes in your tribe, uh, makes it such that conformity becomes actually a much stronger thing. So if you can just clarify that for me a bit, are you saying that this idea about Gen Z's requiring services to be personalized themselves is not in fact true and that they are much happier if a fintech presents them with a service to just go like the rest of us. Yeah, fine. I'll take it. That's precisely that's precisely it. So personalization will not be the best remedy, in my judgment, to uh, address the desires and aspirations of Gen Z. Instead, it will be the ease of doing things, the trust and the loyalty thing that you mentioned earlier. This comes back here now. Loyalty is one thing where it's I expect my company to be loyal to me. Doesn't mean I'm going to be loyal to my employer. So there's more a sense of, hey, it's a two way street which for the last three generations wasn't the case. People dedicated their lives to corporations in, 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 in Asian countries, particularly the salary man thing. That's not working anymore. So the loyalty thing is, hey, you should be for, for me. So so the, the uh, um, notion that they will want personalization probably isn't the biggest uh, note of appeal for them. No. Just taking that idea a little bit further, do you think that instead what that looks like is a need for control, like that offered by decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. Oh, absolutely. So if so you control frame... rather than personalization. Exactly. If you frame it more as the control over what who they are and what they do, then that's certainly true. It's stronger than ever, as opposed to having bells and whistles that reflect their self-image, which is mutative. They they do believe in a mutating image. They're not the same person. They may not even be the same gender. That's something quite different from well, previous generations. Be, if you're on lots of different social media channels, you can be whoever you want. Precisely. Your avatar can be different in different spaces. But if so far as control is the l l framework, yes, that's certainly something they demand more. And so decentralization as a principle strengthens their sense of control over that rather than then being subjects of a state, subjects of a big corporation. So that is a very good way to look at it. Absolutely. 
So that could mean that things like open banking will have legs eventually because it does give consumers a level of control over their data. And uh, when it comes to privacy as well, I've seen there's a, those sorts of things are going to come in, are going to potentially be far more important in fintech. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more because this is certainly tapping into the innate desire of them to exert a sense of control over what is happening and, and who, who they are. It's stronger than in previous generations. Of course, it's true of the previous two, but it's stronger now. So exerting that control. And when you have examples as privy, they're certainly tapping into the right uh, logic to appeal. Yeah. Just playing on this idea of control, you know, climate issues, I mean, none of us feel any control over this. This is something that putting out your recycling and, you know, eating less meat is simply not going to affect. The Gen Z interviewees that we spoke to, very aware of climate issues, but not being prioritized over and above what anyone else is doing, recycling, not eating meat, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think Gen Z is driving innovative fintech around climate action? It seems that some fintech applications have found this to be a key pinpoint to appeal to millennials, and possibly they will continue it in Gen Z. But there is also a, a, um, a, mo a moment of skepticism in this that we refer to as greenwashing which is the idea that there is an appeal, but it's not backed up. And so the same is with corporate social responsibility and ESG. That moment is now. And so the older Gen Zs are asking fintech and other sectors to prove that they really are sustainability because they will not be taken for a ride on this subject. So I think fintech has to be a little bit more careful on is their ESG rhetoric really in line with what is possible for them as organizations? That's a big challenge for them. Yeah. And the whole decentralized finance, that sector is going to have some real problems given their well-publicized energy use. That's um, a good example. Let's talk about the very well-reported lifestyle attitudes that Gen Z have, which I have to say, present in all of the young people that we spoke to, and I think presenting quite an exciting future for the workplace. Work-life balance is important to young people, but they said that working hard is too. How do you see that attitude playing out in terms of Gen Z's earning and therefore spending capacity. Because when we're talking about FinTech, usually it's talking about spending in some way. So how do you think that work-life balance attitude is going to play out in the future? Uh, it's certainly something that uh, Gen Z is articulate about. It's something that older generations are going to struggle to do, which is to persuade Gen Z employees to sacrifice their lives for the organization. So for FinTech, both in terms of having young employees, how to manage them is a tricky subject. And as consumers, how do you deal with Gen Z? This is also a tricky subject for fintech. You cannot take it lightly that they have a certain calculus in their mind. And since they may or may not believe that they can influence the wages that they get paid, they can certainly influence the effort that they put in as a counter uh, measure. And I know for managing Gen Zs, including one you've interviewed, that you can't push them too far. <laughs> they, the good ones will do their part, uh, but they're not going to leap over the cliff. So that is quite different from even the early millennials who were willing to go above and beyond because it was a dog-eat-dog -dog world, that sort of thing. 
Uh, there's no need for dogs to eat dogs anymore, is what Gen Z says. So fintech, uh, whether in Asia, whether in North America or elsewhere, have to be mindful both in terms of managing their employees, because the intellectual capital of Gen Z, the potential certainly exists. No, no generation has been so savvy about the digital era, but also one that is quite recalcitrant to go the extra mile to create value for the employer. And at the same time as consumers, what will appeal to them is a constant subject of discussion. Because they are still coming of age, the final verdict cannot be made. But fintech companies have to be alert in both relationships as employees and and consumers. I, I love how empowered they are in conversations with employers. I'm not sure how, how much in love you are um, with that empowerment, but uh, empowered to have conversations about setting boundaries. How do you see this confidence about the making of money influencing, if at all, the demands on how they use their money? I find the echoes of their articulation of their viewpoints to their employers as one that they will also articulate to their banks. If the bank isn't good enough, well, then it's not good enough. You know what? We'll just make our own bank. It sounds silly, but that is precisely what decentralized banking is. And that's what fintech is. We'll just make our own bank. And so we'll just solve problems ourselves is a part of the temperament of Gen Zs. And so we, of older generations, makes me sound like a dinosaur, but we have to be a little bit more, uh, we're walking on eggshells here. We all, we do want the best for them, it's, it's true, uh, but there's some cross-questioning on both ends on what really is best for Gen Z. Neither they know, and nor do we. So this is a compromise negotiation intergenerationally. Last one for you going to university, this seems to be taking longer and longer. And studies are showing that younger people are taking much longer to reach key milestones, so earning a decent income, um, which often comes after several years of work. What does that mean for banking and financial services? Because you have a cohort of people who are reaching that financial maturity later in life. Fantastic question. Uh, I think it speaks to uh, two uh, relationships that Gen Z has. One is as creators of value and the second is as consumers of value, as creators of value because they harness intellectual capital at later stages in life. It delays the ability for them to create value as members of an economy. But the same is true for them as consumers because they have to delay gratification forcibly. It's not that they don't want to have fun, but they simply can't. And part of it is the economic prices that they have to deal with. Housing has never been this crazy, uh, as as we know. Uh, it, and so not just a question of price, but also supply. So it means that they cannot aspire to the same things uh, as the Gen X or boomers did. So that's the the first point uh, on this. But the other uh, point is about Gen Z uh, finding it a big conundrum of how to proceed with the money they have and what is it that they really should be doing or can be doing with it. And it isn't easy for them to find the answers. So there's three countervailing forces we discuss, and all of the members of this generation will be influenced by one of them. They will be savvier, but they may take bigger risks, especially the, the young guys might. And at the same time, they may be recalcitrant because the accessibility isn't there as it was before. So uh, one thing about education and that I want to point out in addition is that new data is suggesting in countries such as the US that the idea of education leading to higher earnings is not so strong anymore. And college entrance rates seem to be 
as of very recently, falling for the first time. So millennials grew up with this idea, but then they were very disheartened by the time the 2010s came or even 2008, because having accumulated so much education did not immediately translate into higher wages. And in fact, college debt became a very big thing. And it still is a very large thing. And it's a kind of imprisonment because you cannot renege on that debt easily as opposed to other forms of debt. So the Gen Z is much more attuned to that, perhaps because they have older siblings or cousins or friends who are a bit older and seeing the misery that they go through. So that bargain isn't there anymore. And this is probably a good thing because we have hyper-educated society relative to the skills that are actually needed to run it. And so that hyper-education mentality or credentializing mentality seems to be falling. And perhaps that is a good thing, particularly for the younger Gen Z that is coming in, that they don't need to rack up these degrees, especially if the job doesn't require half of the skills that are supposedly taught. Recent research in Australia has also just come out pointing about the same thing. Kids coming out of high school are less likely to go to university or straight to university or even do full-time university because the value proposition does not appear to be there for them anymore. Thank you very much, Osman, once again, coming on Breaking Banks Asia. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Asia's next generation of humans will bring changes we can guess at and many more we can't. These might be financial services that offer even more control over data or identity. They might be simplified investments creeping into ever more complicated areas. Or it might mean another generation learns that no one wins at Forex trading. It might mean a decentralised world where every individual is a bank and fintechs are just the platforms on which we play banker. Undoubtedly, someone will come up with a new form of debt that will appeal to the way Gen Z lives as they become the next group of adults to start working and saving. What we can guess at is that a desire for financial stability, combined with a need for control, is set to change what Gen Zs spend money on, how they use fintech, and where they go for those services. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.